Hello, and welcome to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. I am Stephen P. Wood, your host for today's session. I'm a critical care and emergency medicine nurse practitioner and World Extreme Medicine Fellow, and I'm very excited to have you joining us today. I'm excited today to introduce Dr. Michelle Rua. Dr. Rua is a professor of medicine and emergency medicine at the University of Arizona College of Medicine. She's the chief of medical toxicology there and a principal investigator of the North American Snake Bite Registry. She has over 30 peer-reviewed papers, chapters, and online resources on envenomation and is here to talk to us today about snake bites, scorpions, and a surprise ending on Gila monster envenomation. So welcome, Dr. Rua. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, it's exciting to have you. And um, I somehow became a little bit known as the snake guy. I'm not sure how. I'm from the Northeast where we don't really have any snakes. Um, but I was lucky enough to have uh, some interviews with a couple of other um, uh, guests on snakes. Uh, and it's really uh, now I'm I guess I'm considered the snake guy. So I, I'm excited to have you on board. I know you have extensive experience in this area. Um, so we're going to talk snakes. We're also going to talk a little bit about scorpions. Um, so can you share with us a little bit of how you developed your interest in envenomation? It's certainly a niche area, even for toxicologists. Um, so share with us, if you could, uh, your, your kind of background and your experience in this area. Yeah, well, I, I actually grew up in New Jersey and did my emergency medicine residency there and we really didn't have envenomations so it is a little strange that I ended up so interested in them I came out to Arizona to do my fellowship and you know it's a hot spot for snake bites and scorpion stings and I was fascinated with it but when I really think back to why why was I in particular so interested in this topic uh, it hit me that my father was in, uh, envenomated by a copperhead <laughs> and he had a um, finger deformity. So I grew up like he would always tell the story about why his distal phalanx was at a 45 degree angle. And it was because when he was a teenager, he was bit by a copperhead. So I wonder if that sort of <laughs> subconsciously, uh, you know, got me interested in envenomations. I was always sort of fascinated by that story and a little freaked out by it. But um, then I came to Arizona and I just found the uh, cases to be so fun, um, challenging, and and it's just a really exciting area to practice in. No, that's first first and foremost, it's a, a very interesting family history there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's certainly one way to develop an interest um, in that area. And two, yeah, I, you know, for the United States, especially um, Arizona and probably, is it California is another um, state where a lot of these envenomations occur? Yeah, I think that probably the busiest states when it comes to snake bites would be Arizona, California, Texas, and probably Florida. Oh yeah, Florida. I, I always forget about Florida for some reason, but uh, maybe maybe subconsciously, I'm just hoping. No, I I, I love Florida. I enjoy Florida, um, but yeah, that 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 makes sense, and that uh, that's you know where our populations of these um, snakes and scorpions and and other kind of venomous um, uh, creatures you know kind of 
uh, reside. But we're also going to talk a little bit um, internationally uh, near the end. Um, so I hope not to be too U.S. centric, but we are going to focus a little bit kind of on some of the um, you know animals that are uh, here in the United States and particularly in Arizona. So um, first, I want to to talk about you know a little bit of epidemiology. So kind of what is the epidemiology surrounding? I guess we can talk mostly about snake bites, but if you could um, you know speak on scorpions, that would be of interest as well. Sure. Um, well, in the United States, uh, the, almost all of the envenomations from snakes are due to pit vipers. Those would include um, rattlesnakes, the cottonmouths, also called water moccasins, or copperheads. And that's really like 95 plus percent of the native snake bites in the U.S. And then the rest would be, uh, the rest of the native snake bites would be due to coral snakes. Um, The eastern coral snake is mainly in the southeast U.S., and that's the most dangerous of the coral snakes. There's also a Texas coral snake, which is not quite as bad as an eastern coral snake envenomation. And then we do have a coral snake in Arizona, but it's actually not really medically important, so we don't even worry about that here. And then the uh, rattlesnakes are all over the U.S., but the copperheads and the cottonmouths are uh, more on the east, eastern Part of the country. And um, otherwise, we do get some non-native snake bites. Uh, probably only about 40 to 50 a year get reported, but we get snake bites from all species that live all over the world. There's some that are particularly popular, like cobras and um, some of the African vipers, uh, but Asian pit vipers also. So, um, it is sort of um, necessary to have at least a little bit of knowledge about what to do uh, for even non-native snake bites. And then for and, the scorpion, oh, go ahead. Oh, sure, please, please continue. Oh, I was just gonna say for the scorpions, it's a little bit more straightforward. Um, there are um, different venomous species of scorpions all over the Euro- world, but in the US, there's only a single species that is capable of producing a like a neurotoxic syndrome and that's the bark scorpion which primarily lives in arizona it's centroides sculpturatus but um centroides are also the family of scorpions or i'm sorry the genus of scorpions that cause toxicity in um mexico and central america and then in south america it's uh, tidious and and over in the what's called the old world. <laughs> There's old world scorpions that belong to other Boothidae, uh, in the Boothidae family. And those are some of the most dangerous ones in the world, like Androctonus and Lyris. And those are the really bad scorpions that you hear about. And with the non-native snake bites, the majority of these are obviously are coming from people that are keeping them as pets. Is that where those kind of snake bites are coming from? Typically, yes, they can occur. Um, they can occur in people who work with them. So perhaps you know somebody who works in a zoo, or maybe someone who extracts venom to make antivenoms. Um, but for the most part, they do occur in people who are keeping them as pets, or you know, which in some states might be legal, but is in is illegal in other states. Uh, but yeah, that is typically the case. Yeah, I think, you know, here uh, in the Northeast, um, growing up, we were always afraid of water moccasins. 
Um, but I, I don't think I've ever seen one. Um, and we're lucky enough to not have a huge population of snakes um, or scorpions. Um, our most, I mean, our biggest problems are mosquitoes and ticks, which do create a number of problems as well, but certainly not as exciting as a, a snake or scorpion bite. Um, I want to talk first a little bit about kind of, um, so we got a little background on the epidemiology and some of the, the different um, snakes that are here in the U.S. and scorpions. Um, you know, I want to speak to our, our audience that, you know, is out there in the field and is, is, is working in these, you know, the, these environments, um, either as a medical professional or, you know, someone um, just enjoying the, the lands. If you do encounter uh, a snake and you've been bitten by a snake, um, certainly identification is going to be helpful. But what are some basic principles that you might um, share with us on how to manage the snake bite, whether you do or don't know it's venomous? Well, I guess I would first start by saying if you are going to be out in an area that may have venomous snakes, I would definitely uh, lean towards wearing boots or some kind of, you know, footwear that covers your foot and even long pants if possible. Uh, in the North American Snake Bite Registry, we're trying to collect data on what type of footwear people are using if they uh, get a leg bite. And we do often see no shoes or flip flops or something that's, you know, not providing any type of barrier to the snake. So I think there are some preventive measures you can take. But if you do find yourself, you know, miles, perhaps you're hiking and you're miles from the trailhead and you're bitten by a snake, really the most important thing is to just get to medical attention. There really aren't any recommended field therapies. Surprisingly, people are still doing all sorts of things that are not recommended, like placing tourniquets. Um, we have several patients every year who place a tourniquet um, above the wound when they get bitten by a snake. Um, you know, you risk uh, preventing blood flow to, to the area and, and worsening tissue damage. If you do that, there's all sorts of, you know, gimmicky things that get marketed like venom extractors and things like that. They have not been shown to be helpful. And if anything, they may be harmful. Uh, we do find that people who have in some way manipulated the wound before they come for treatment seem to be more likely to develop infection in that wound later. Um, so I don't think there's really too much you can do except keep yourself well hydrated. Um, if you can keep the extremity immobilized, that's great, but I don't actually think that's usually practical or possible for most people uh, when they're out in the field. Um, another therapy that, that has been recommended in certain situations is pressure immobilization, uh, applying a pressure bandage around the extremity to prevent absorption of the venom. That's really um, recommended for a lapid snakes. Um, now our coral snakes are a lapids, so that might be something that um, could be helpful if there's a delay to care after a coral snake bite, but really for almost all of the snake bites in the United States, uh, we don't even recommend a pressure immobilization bandage because we worry about trapping the venom uh, in, in the tissue uh, at the bite site because the venom 
of pit vipers can be very tissue toxic. So uh, the concern is that the pressure mobilization bandage would actually worsen the injury. So you're saying all the things I learned from TV, which is to cut the wound open, suck out the venom, put a tourniquet on, none of those things are, are going to be useful for me. But definitely not. And then we do see people who do even more extreme things. We had a terrible case recently where someone both applied a tourniquet and soaked the wound, the hand in bleach mm. overnight, trying to, I guess, you know, inactivate the venom. And uh, the person had just ter terrible chemical injury uh, and really severe tissue toxicity required multiple surgeries. So unfortunately, as much as we try to educate uh, about just getting to healthcare, people still, you know, they just aren't aware and they're, they try, <laughs> try to do something to prevent further injury and in, instead they worsen it. Sure, sure. And for those of us who do work in emergency medicine, but are, you know, less likely to see these types of um, injuries because of our, where, where we clinically practice, um, what are some of the basics for emergency management uh, we know not to place tourniquets, uh, you know, soaking in bleach, obviously is not going to be um, a good practice either. What about things like, um, antibiotics, tetanus immunization? What are, what are some of the principles around, um, you know, for those of us who aren't seeing these with any frequency, what should we be doing to manage them if we you do see them in our emergency departments. Sure. Well, I think tetanus and cleaning the wound is always great. Um, we, I always recommend putting patients on a cardiac monitor to start and getting an IV established and giving them a fluid bolus. I think anyone with a pit viper envenomation is likely to have some um, disruption of the basement membrane and uh, endothelial cells and you get fluid leak. Uh, and, and they all seem to be a little fluid depleted when they arrive. So I like to give a fluid bolus. Um, we do not recommend antibiotics empirically. Most snake bites don't get infected. Um, and, uh, so empiric antibiotics are unnecessary. Uh, otherwise, oh, there's another thing that, um, sometimes people reflexively do, which is apply ice to the wound. We don't recommend mm -hmm. ice either. Um, it may just worsen tissue damage and it's not going to, you know, prevent the swelling. Um, the other thing that we recommend is actually elevation of the wound, I'm sorry, of the extremity. So, uh, as the swelling develops, if, if you have the extremity in a dependent position, the swelling really gets worse distally and it seems to cause a lot of pain for patients. So there isn't really evidence to um, demonstrate the effect of position on the envenomation. But um, most experts, I think, would agree that elevating the extremity lessens the distal uh, edema and seems to improve pain. I mean, every patient will tell you, my arm hurts more when I have it down and it you know, feels better when I have it elevated. Uh, so we like to elevate and um, give IV fluids, put patients on the monitor, clean the wound. Um, and then we assess for, you know, whether or not the patient meets criteria for antivenom. So let's talk broadly a little bit about some of the signs and symptoms you might see. And then I do want to talk a little bit about antivenom. So what are some of the signs and symptoms that you might see by category of snake? Um, okay. 
Well, uh, the pit vipers are all very similar. They just uh, tend to be on a spectrum. So the rattlesnakes have the most severe um, findings in general. The cottonmouths would be in the middle and the copperheads are the least severe. Uh, you can have mild rattlesnake bites and you can have severe copperhead bites, but that's sort of the general rule. Uh, the most common finding is swelling. So when patients do get venom deposited and they have an envenomation, they start to swell and that also can occur on a spectrum. So it can be a very slow progression, very mild. It can also be really severe and rapid. And envenomation is just really dynamic process. So a patient can show up with mild swelling and you decide to observe them and over time it just worsens and worsens. But uh, swelling at the site of the bite, which then moves proximally, is probably the most common uh, finding. Uh, patients can also have ecchymosis with that, erythema. Sometimes they get very bright red erythema, which is inflammatory, but that's where sometimes um, people will get worried and think that it's infectious, but it's very normal to have erythema right after a snake envenomation by pit viper. The next most common thing we see is uh, hemotoxicity, and this is primarily with the rattlesnake bites. Patients get uh, hypofibrinogenemia, so their fibrinogen can be really low, and they get thrombocytopenia. And if they have uh, both, they sometimes will also have some oozing of blood from the puncture sites. Um, in really severe cases, patients might present bleeding, but bleeding is actually pretty rare. Other things that you might see with pit viper envenomations are neurotoxicity. Those, this is definitely most common in rattlesnake bites, and in particular with some populations of the Mojave rattlesnake and the Southern Pacific rattlesnake. Uh, but there are many species of rattlesnakes that are associated with fasciculations or myokymia. And in some severe cases, patients can have muscle weakness and respiratory failure. And then there's a severe shock. It's not common, but we see it every year where a patient has a really severe systemic reaction after their bite, where they become hypotensive. Sometimes we see angioedema, and um, they may have vomiting and diarrhea preceding the hypotension. And uh, you know, every now and then there there is a patient who dies, but it's very uncommon to have death after a rattlesnake bite or any native snake bite really. Those are the, the main symptoms or clinical findings with the pit viper envenomation. With coral snakes, the main concern is neurotoxicity. So the local findings are pretty minimal. In fact, with coral snakes, they have really tiny fangs. So you don't even always see puncture marks after a coral snake bite, which is why anyone with a suspected coral snake bite needs to be observed for up to 24 hours to just make sure they're not, they don't develop neurotoxicity. Um, it starts out with a bulbar weakness and you can have a descending paralysis. And this, the onset of neurotoxicity can actually be delayed over 12 hours. So anyone with a suspected coral snake bite, um, particularly Eastern coral snake bite has to be watched for 24 hours for onset of neurotoxicity. And regarding, uh, you mentioned that some patients will develop angioedema and, and shock. 
Um, is that angioedema a bradykinin uh, type process similar to what we might see with like ACE inhibitors, something of that nature? Yeah, yeah. What's what's the kind of underlying pathophysiology there? Yes, you're well, that's exactly it. So snake venom um, has different components in it, which um, like some, some prevent the breakdown of bradykinin. So bradykinin potentiating peptides. Uh, so there are components that may stimulate bradykinin receptors or prevent the breakdown of bradykinin or increase the production of it. And it is thought that that's the mechanism for hypotension, angioedema in some cases, and these systemic reactions. Um, now, it's also possible in some cases patients have anaphylaxis to venom. And these are in patients usually that have been pre, you know, pre-sensitized. So I, we've seen it in patients who work with pit vipers um, occupationally. So biologists or herpetologists, if they seem to have been exposed to venom proteins in the past, you don't necessarily have to have been bitten by a snake before. But um, there are people who are pre-sensitized and then actually have like full-blown anaphylaxis. And sometimes you just don't know. Um, the, the presentation can be so similar that sometimes it's hard to know whether it's an anaphylactoid reaction to venom or anaphylaxis because of a previous um, exposure and sensitization. And so I imagine in that setting then, um, for again, for those of us who work clinically, uh, but don't see these very often, or you may be seeing these with some frequency. Epinephrine then would might might be your presser of choice if you're looking towards management of of shock or possible anaphylaxis. Yes, yes. So we will treat with epinephrine um, in in our snake bites that are hypotensive exactly for those reasons. We'll use that preferentially. Interesting. And then um, I do want to get to um, antivenom. So, uh, you know, how important is it to know the species of snake, uh, you know, before we start to consider the use of antivenom and in which patients would you actually consider treating them with antivenom? Um, I think, well, in the United States, it's actually really easy. Um, unlike other countries, which have different really different types of snakes that require different antivenoms. All of our pit vipers are treated with the same antivenoms. So if someone is presenting with a snake bite history and they're developing symptoms and findings consistent with a pit viper envenomation, then it's easy. You you can give them a, you know, a pit viper antivenom for the United States and, and we have two choices. Uh, but you don't need to know whether it was a copperhead or a rattlesnake or what type of rattlesnake. I think there's a lot of us, including myself, who, who think it's fun to know. You know, we're curious about what types of presentations are associated with what species of rattlesnake bites, but you don't need to know to be able to treat. So as long as you know that it's consistent with a pit viper envenomation, then, then you can treat with antivenom. And the reasons that you would decide to use antivenom would include swelling that is worsening. So someone shows up and they're swell. If they have really mild swelling, um, you can wait and see if maybe it gets better. I, I find it's a very small minority of patients who get mild swelling and it just kind of 
um, stops progressing and you don't need to treat them, but it happens. So it's worth, worth waiting. But if they're getting worse right in front of you or, or you're observing them and their swelling keeps progressing or they have any other findings like hemotoxicity, neurotoxicity, systemic symptoms, we just treat, that's, that's an indication for antivenom. And most patients who have a snake envenomation will meet criteria for antivenom. And then for the coral snakes, um, you know, there's a little bit of a debate around which coral snake bite patients should be treated with antivenom. Uh, there are some experts that feel that everyone should be treated uh, empirically if they have had an eastern coral snake bite because um, once they start developing neurotoxicity, is it isn't necessarily reversed once antivenom is given. But there seems to be a growing um, body of literature and uh, more experts who feel that you can wait for symptoms. And based on everything I've read and um, the experts that I've spoken to, I would say if you have someone with a coral snake envenomation, I would watch them closely. And if they start to develop signs or symptoms of envenomation, then I would treat them with antivenom. And the reason I would wait is because most patients are probably not going to develop signs of an envenomation after a coral snake envenomation. The percent of envenomated patients isn't as high as with pit viper envenomations. And there are adverse effects associated with antivenom. So I would prefer not to give someone antivenom unnecessarily, both because of the adverse effects that can potentially occur, and also because antivenom is very expensive. And the availability of antivenom, I, I assume in your emergency department, you probably stock this. Um, I, I know here in, you know, in Boston, we actually have to get it shipped to us from uh, New York. Uh, but do you generally have this? Is this something that's for these areas that have, you know, higher frequencies of bites? Is it readily available or is it kind of centralized? I think in in the areas of the United States where bites are fairly frequent, I believe that emergency departments would generally stock it or hospitals would generally stock it. I can't speak for everywhere, but in Arizona, we, my hospital is a tertiary referral center for rattlesnake bites, and we stock hundreds of vials of antivenom. I mean, I think this week we've already had three snake envenomations. We have somebody, at least one patient on our service right now. So we're constantly using the antivenom. But even throughout Arizona, I think almost every emergency department in the state has at least an initial dose so that they can begin treatment on the patient and then transfer them, you know, to a center like mine. Um, and I, I do think that most of the, the states um, in the U.S. that have more frequent snake bites do stock antivenom. But it's understandable to me that in Boston you wouldn't because I imagine right. getting a snake bite is very... <laughs> Very unusual. It's pretty unusual. And in fact, when I, I used I worked at the poison center and the one call that I got where someone claimed to have been bitten by an um, African black mamba was actually a friend of mine who was just pranking me. So it was incredibly <laughs> exciting for a very brief period of time until he 
till he gave himself up. But uh, now, how about your EMS um, programs? Do the EMS programs uh, in Arizona do they carry antivenom? Is that something that used in the field setting? That's a great question. And it's been, you know, the topic has come up here, but they don't. And we don't think it's necessary. Uh, like I said, you know, most emergency departments throughout the state are going to have at least some antivenom. And I don't think the need for antivenom is typically so urgent that you can't wait till you get to an emergency department. You know, it's an extremely expensive drug. You don't want to give it unnecessarily. Um, and it also, you know, our average time to an emergency department or to healthcare facility after a snake bite, whenever we stu you know, do studies of our population, I mean, it's typically somewhere between, you know, one and three hours. Um, average is usually around two. That there, there usually isn't such an urgency that you have to get anti-venom anti on board before that. No, it certainly makes sense. And I, I think we've seen that with other interventions that we consider, you know, time sensitive. Um, oftentimes there is enough time um, as long as the, you know, transit time is, is short enough. I would imagine, you know, there might be some circumstances for agencies that were, have prolonged transports that might be something to consider, but it seems like um, you have some time uh, in this setting to do the, the basics, which you mentioned, which are elevation and fluids and things of that nature. Um, so you have a little time before uh, re it's required that you would need something of that nature. Right. Uh, so I'll admit that, you know, uh, as, as much experience as I have with snake bites, um, even less with scorpions, I think the closest <laughs> I've come is seeing the band, the scorpions play here. Uh, and there was some neurotoxicity there as well, but I think it was not from um, right. envenomation. I think it was something else. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about um, the scorpions? Uh, you mentioned there's just, you know, one variety here in the U.S. If you could speak to that and if you could sure. speak to any of the others as well, that'd be greatly appreciated. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um I think scorpion stings are so much fun. I mean, they're terrible for the person experiencing it, but it's just, I think what makes it fun is it's like such a severe presentation and yet it does not last very long. So the bark scorpion, um, it, it is mainly in Arizona, but it's also found in Nevada and parts of, you know, Southern California. Um, it's just a really small, it's about two inches long tan scorpion. And um, it, tends to enter homes a lot. One of my partners published a study a few years ago that showed that 98% of scorpion stings um, that are called to the poison center in Arizona occur inside residences. So it seems that the scorpions are, you know, trying to get out of the heat and they hide in shoes and sometimes get into people's beds or um, another interesting thing about them is they can the bark scorpion, but not other species locally, can um, climb up walls and on ceilings. So sometimes they'll, you know, fall into a bed or a crib from the ceiling. It's all kind of sounds like a horror movie. But um, when they sting, mostly they just cause local pain. So although we um, see some really severe cases, the the majority of scorpion stings never require presentation to a healthcare facility. 
they cause a burning um, pain and kind of like maybe even like a bee sting as far as the pain goes. And then it resolves in a, in a short amount of time. What we get more concerned about is when patients get neurotoxicity. And this is more likely to occur in young children, but it can occur in any age. And we do see it in, in adults also. So the venom um, affects sodium channels and causes release of neurotransmitters. And there's this interesting clinical syndrome that occurs that results in um, muscle, like this hyperactivity, sometimes we call it neuromuscular agitation. Uh, they can have jerking, like myoclonic jerks and thrashing and fasciculations. And um, it, it almost looks like convulsions like non non-epileptic convulsions but um and young children will sort of be arching their backs and twisting back and forth and it's really interesting looking and then in addition to that you get these cranial nerve findings and the most um characteristic is this um what we call opsoclonus where your eyes are sort of roving uh in a disconjugate way. And it's very, if a patient presents and their eyeballs are sort of darting around and they're not coordinated, it's classic for scorpion envenomation in Arizona. So the combination of the, um, the eye findings and the neuromuscular agitation um, constitutes what we call a grade four envenomation. And that's um, the most severe and a really severe grade four can also be accompanied by um, respiratory distress and respiratory failure. Patients can have trouble controlling their secretions. They have hypersalivation. They have um, tongue fasciculation. So they're really uncoordinated. And um, sometimes they have to be intubated. Uh, Several years ago, we did not have any antivenom available at all. We were sort of in this period when an, an old antivenom was no longer being made and, and the new one that's now FDA approved wasn't yet available or being studied. And we looked at all of our cases of scorpion envenomation that were not treated with antivenom, just like at the full clinical course. And we published it, but it was interesting to see that a quarter of them ended up on a ventilator. So um, of the patients that present with a, a neurotoxic syndrome, it can be really severe and life-threatening. Um, but- This sounds like the plot to the exorcist is what you're is, it is, Well, it's so interesting that you say that because I remember once I reviewed all of the uh, poison center charts and um, they would have the emergency physicians calling into the poison center to like present the case to them. And it was not uncommon to say that the patient looked like they were possessed <laughs> or like if they were possessed by the devil. Uh, it really, it's like so dramatic in the, in the more severe cases, it's really a dramatic presentation. And I think like, that's one of the reasons I always have thought it was like very fun and satisfying is because if you give them antivenom, it just gets better, like in the snap of a finger. So it's really... It's a very, from a medical standpoint, it's a really interesting um, syndrome. And what are that that it sounds? I'm, I'm now I'm glad that I haven't seen it. I think, <laughs> um, yeah, 
uh, and and I'm more than happy to maybe hopefully not have a case uh, in my in my career. It sounds uh, pretty frightening for everyone involved, but it, it's re- reassuring to hear that it responds fairly well to treatment. So, what are some of the basics of management of these envenomations from scorpions? Well. You can use supportive care or you can use antivenom. And um, I think it's good to know that supportive care is just fine because these scorpions do hijack rides on planes every now and then. And and uh, for a lecture one time, I just started doing a Google search of news stories. And, you know, it's, it's pretty common for, like, news stories about, you know, someone, say Boston, somebody gets off a plane in Boston and they've been stung by a scorpion on the plane. I'm not trying to like freak out your listeners even more, (laughs) but there are a lot of those stories out there. Um, And so as an emergency physician in Boston, you actually, you know, it's possible someone will come in and they've had a scorpion sting by a bark scorpion because it happened on a plane. And uh, the good thing to know is there is not, it's not crucial to get antivenom. In fact, you'll never get antivenom for a scorpion sting so fast that the patient will already They'll already have recovered by the time you could get it. Um, so, score, so supportive care is the most important aspect is uh, monitoring the airway really closely. Because as I said, respiratory failure is possible. Uh, in, in younger children, respiratory fa- failure can occur from the effects of the envenomation on its own. But there's also uh, a risk from the medications you use to treat the symptoms. So we use both opioids and benzodiazepines. Uh, patients are often in pain. I don't think I mentioned the the paresthesias. I, you know, I said that it feels like a bee sting if you get a sting, but in the really severe cases, you can get burning paresthesias um, that just spread throughout your whole body, and it, it's really painful. So when patients present, we do give them opioids. And then because of all that neuromuscular agitation and the thrashing around, they get a lot of benzos too. So between the opioids and benzos, you know, you're depressing their respirations and they're already having, potentially having trouble uh, with their airway. So you have to keep a really close eye on them and, uh, you know, provide respiratory support if needed. So that's probably the most important aspect. We usually do admit our scorpion stings to the intensive care unit if if they're getting supportive care. And within about 24 hours, they're usually ready to go home. So it's not something that lasts very long. Uh, Antivenom is another option. And I think it's the option that most physicians and parents, you know, and I guess even adult patients would prefer uh, because antivenom works so quickly. uh, It can be given right in the emergency department and then the patient goes home from the emergency department because it completely reverses their symptoms. Um, The antivenom is, you know, it's just usually about two to three vials is is needed. The range is two to five, um, but the the dose that's recommended is three vials to start and then the symptoms usually should be gone within an hour and and the patients are are back to their baseline that's pretty amazing um I'm, i think we're going to have to check with samuel l jackson and see if he's available to do a follow-up to snakes on the plane called scorpions on the plane it sounds like that would be a popular film yeah i don't know i think it would be yeah even creepier 
I have a bunch of scorpions crawling around. I would uh, imagine. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, yeah, the, the antivenom is actually uh, made using a species of centroides scorpion from Mexico. So um, you had asked about other, you know, scorpion stings in other areas too, but the presentation and treatment is actually the same in like Mexico and Central America also. Interesting. No, that's, it's something I, you know, I think that, uh, you know, it's important to know the signs, the symptoms, but also how to manage it. And as it sounds like it's quite horrifying to see, but it responds well to either um, antivenom if that's available, but also to um, conservative management or, or supportive care, um, which is important to know for those of us who aren't seeing them with any regularity and might not have access, um, that it might take longer, but supportive care is also a reasonable option. Yes, yes. So we've talked snakes, we've talked scorpions. Uh, you mentioned in our brief chat before coming on today about something I think probably most people have even less experience with, which is you had your case conference on Gila monster envenomation, which um, sounds much more interesting than some of the most recent case um, conferences I've attended. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh yeah, I was just, well, we, you know, we also have Gila monsters. They're one of uh, two venomous lizards um, in this area. Well, in Mexico, there's the uh, beaded lizard also, but the Gila monster is in Arizona. And uh, we do, the envenomations are very rare because the Gila monster will never uh, bite someone unless the person is handling it. And that is illegal because <laughs> it's protected. So it's very rare for us to get Gila monster envenomations, but it happens. But I happen to be on a uh, emergency medicine grand rounds in, in from a program in Osaka Japan and one of their residents was presenting a case and it was a Gila monster envenomation that had happened at like a reptile cafe there. And I realized, wow, you know, you don't have to live in Arizona to see a Gila monster envenomation because they are kept in zoos and in, you know, uh, different places all over the world and it's possible, but these are really fascinating. They're, um, these animals have very, very strong, uh, jaws and bites. And when they bite down, they tend to really latch on and chew and they can, uh, deposit venom that, uh, contains some, some different components that can produce an envenomation, um, that's a, distinct from, from what we've discussed. So there is something called helotoxin which also has some bradykinin potentiating activity and can cause angioedema and hypotension. So that part can be similar to snake bites, but this is something that can be really severe. And it's not unusual for us when there is a Gila monster bite to hear that the patient like was on the verge of obstructing their airway and had to, had to be traked. So that happens sometimes. And then um, more commonly, the patients will get a really um, swollen, erythematous, you know, uh, extremity where they're bitten, and a severe leukocytosis, uh, and it's very, very painful. So the patients who have heel monster envenomations, you know, that I've seen have have been in a lot of pain, but it doesn't progress like a rattlesnake bite does, and we don't have antivenom for it. 
Um, but the most the most um, interesting presentation to me is is uh, the hypotension and angioedema, and we just treat that you know, with supportive care, you know, we'll use epi, we'll try antihistamines and, and, uh, obviously airway support is needed. That is certainly very interesting. And, um, and, and something honestly that I hadn't put a whole lot of thought into. Um, but you know, it's, it's another creature that's out there that, uh, that, has some interesting um, toxicologic pathology. So I want to thank you, Dr. Rua. This has been an enlightening and informative talk. Um, and we also have a potential movie script to pitch, possibly <laughs> to Samuel L. Jackson, um, uh, Scorpions on the Plane. Um, but uh, in, in all, uh, it, kidding aside, this is, you know, important information. It's, it's very, very interesting. Um, I think, you know, while most of us think, well, these animals, you know, aren't native to my region. Again, as you mentioned, a lot of people are keeping these as pets. There are a lot of people that, um, you know, you also mentioned with, you know, uh, scorpions, they could be traveling along with you. Um, and we also have a lot of listeners that, you know, do quite a bit of travel and expedition. And it's important to know, you know, what what's out there when you're when you're traveling to these areas and, and at least some of the basic management principles behind that as well as for those of us who are working clinically um, in emergency medicine, some of the principles behind managing some of these important uh, envenomations. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. It's been a pleasure. I hope we get to talk to you again. Well, thank you. This has been fun. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this episode of the World Extreme Medicine podcast, please subscribe, like, and share. And if you want to meet lots of other risk-taking, rule-bending and inspirational people, then you need to be in Edinburgh on the 19th to the 21st of November for this year's conference. Tickets are on sale now. Go to extrememedicineexpo.com to find out more.